Hi. Hi. It's good to see you. My name is Chris Hilkin. I'm from San Diego, California. Oh, yeah. Okay, some of us. Okay. Um, I have five kids, which is entirely too many, but it's too late, you know? It's too late. What am I going to do? Um, if I were to guess, I, whenever I say that, there's always someone who's like, he's too young. He's too young. I thought he was 17, um, which is rude. But um, here, here's where I'm going to guess you are, okay? Let me, let me make a guess. And, uh, You've been traveling all day. There's been like all this weather advisory. A lot of us have been cooped up in our homes for the last week because everyone prayed for rain in California and God was like, how about all at once, right? Like, <laughs> it's like God spread it out, man, spread it out. But he was just like, right? So you've been cooped up, then you get in a bus and you like travel up the hill and everything's going on and now you're up here and now you've had a, you sit through like rules and then you're sitting through worship and everything and like the last thing you want is to sit and listen to some dude who for, you know, he has entirely too many children talk about nonsense, right? And for some of you, you've been in church your whole life, right? So you've heard a thousand sermons. And if you listen to one more sermon, you're gonna lose it. And for some of you, you're brand new to church, but this isn't why you came right? Someone invited you or someone last minute, you snuck in on someone's bus. So you shouldn't be here, right? You're like, you didn't pay. But uh, welcome anyway to Hume Lake Christian Camps. We can't kick you out because God said so. Uh, that's the way that Christianity works. But you, you don't care. You just, you're, you're disinterested in the God conversation. And some of you, you're so steeped in the God conversation that it ceased to affect you. And you liken yourselves to religious elite, when in reality you are as far away from God as the person who doesn't want anything to do with him because you're so inundated in it that the idea of the gospel and grace is just totally lost on you. I know that because that's who I was when I was your age. I started coming to Hume Lake when I was 11 years old. 11 years old, right? I would sit like right here and like right here every time and I'd listen to this guy speak and I would judge the people around me. I thought I was better than them. I couldn't, you know, I was like, God... Strike them down in your fist of fury, right? Us good kids, this is, the church should be full of us good kids like me, who think like me and act like me and talk like me and refrain from the things that I refrain from. And some of you are like right on board with me. You're like, yeah, God should do that. And other people, you're like, he's talking about me. You're like, I'm one of the ones that, like, I think some of you are convinced God probably hates you, Right? Like, you, you, don't, you don't think that God wants anything to do with you. If, if the people around you knew what you actually participated in, then you would, probably wouldn't be welcome in here, you think to yourself. God is a God for those people and not for me. Wherever you find yourselves, one thing I know for sure is that a lot of us have become so disinterested in the God conversation for whatever reason. And I get it. Let me tell you why this is a passion of mine. It's a passion of mine because when I was your age, I always wanted someone to tell me the truth, okay? Like one of my pet peeves in life is when someone treats me like a child, and I'm sure you're probably in the same way. Right? When someone patronizes you or talks down to you or makes you, like condescends to you and makes you feel younger than you actually are or dumber than you actually are, it bugs. And I, I felt like I would go to church week after week, and I felt like the Bible was full of these really difficult truths, these really hard things to grasp, or these intense things to understand, and yet I just kept getting fed this like watered-down version of the gospel. And so I, here's the commitment I want to make to you. 
I am going to talk to you like adults. Like, I'm going to treat you like adults. I'm going to tell you some really crazy, egregious things. I'm going to talk to you about my own life experience, which is offensive in and of itself. Because I believe that the God conversation is for thinking people, for adults. And some of you, you walk around and you, we, we interface with Jesus all the time. We see the churches that we drive by and we've rejected him, but you really don't have any clue who he is. And others of you, we've spent so much time in churches that we think that we're close to Jesus, like spending time in McDonald's makes you a happy meal, and that's not the way the system works. You can't just be a part of it. You can't be overweight and spend a lot of time in the gym, sitting in the corner, and get fit. That is not how it works. And so we found ourselves in different places today, and, and, and let me tell you why I'm so passionate about this topic, because I want to present this to you, because by the end of this weekend, I'm going to ask you to make a decision but I want it to be an informed decision like anything else in your life. On March 24th of 2021, my fifth kid was born. Her name's Finley. Finley's amazing. About a week after Finley was born, my wife started having pretty intense back pains, and she didn't know what it was, so we got it checked out. It ended up being a pulmonary embolism. It means a blood clot on your lungs. About 25% of people who get pulmonary embolisms, their first symptom is sudden death. Okay, so I'm a pastor, I teach, I work with high school students and young adults. I was a teaching pastor at a church of 12,000 people, right? Every weekend I would get up and 12,000 people would tune in and they, what does Chris have to say? Nothing intelligent, of course, but this is, that was my job, that's what I did. So you, you get used to this hum and you feel like you're doing a great job, like you're working for God's kingdom, you're doing the right thing, and, and as such, you have this contractual relationship with God. I am going to do the things that you tell me to do, and you are going to be the divine cosmic slot machine. You give me what I want, you protect me from what I don't, you satisfy all of my desires, and you keep me away from all harm and danger. This was the contract I had with God, similar to many of your contracts. And as I have that contract, I hear this from the doctor that she has a pulmonary embolism, and I think to myself, I think you've made a mistake. Right? Like this could have potentially ended her life. And the doctor said to her point blank, I'm glad you came in because if you had waited a week, you might not be here. Well, this actually terrified my wife. It terrified her so much that that night when we were going to bed, she couldn't sleep. She woke up in the middle of the night and thought that she was having a heart attack. And so she woke me up and she's like, Chris, Chris, I'm dying. And I'm like, what? Right? If you're like gotten out of like a dead sleep and you're like, what are you talking about? Right? Are, you, are you having a dream? Are you, is there some kind of a nightmare? Like what's going on? She said, I think I'm dying. She said, I want to wake up the kids and tell them goodbye. And I'm like, slow down. Catch me up. Like what? She's like, I can feel, I feel like the blood clot has slipped my lungs and it's gone into my heart and it's about to kill me. And so like I'm calling an ambulance. I'm freaking out, not knowing what's going on. They said, well, we got to the emergency room, and I'm like, I'm looking up at God like, okay, <laughs> right? Like, I'm trying to pull out the contract of like, remember, remember who, what your job is, right? I do the junk that you say, and you do the junk that I say. This is how it works. This is how the system plays itself out. <clears throat> so we get to the hospital. She's terrified, and then she doesn't sleep for 10 nights straight. If you don't know about sleeplessness or insomnia, if you don't sleep for that long, uh, it's extremely dangerous. It's a, dep it's a deprivation to your brain. If you don't give someone food, water, and sleep, sleep almost always kills them first. And if it doesn't kill them, it'll leave them in a state where their brain and their synapses are crossed. They're rewired and they're messed up. By about day seven, my wife started talking about suicidal thoughts and suicidal ideation. I, I got to sit front row 
and watch mental illness take its effect on my wife. The mother of my five kids started four different businesses, um, national championship softball player, graduated college at the age of 19, graduating summa cum laude, having skipped two grades throughout her. This is just like absolute powerhouse. She gave birth to Finley in the corner of our bedroom in 59 minutes, not the hospital, in the corner of our bedroom in less than an hour. And now what I'm hearing is that my wife, who also follows Jesus, is having suicidal thoughts. We take her down to a hospital in San Diego where they start giving her treatment. They give her about every tranquilizer you possibly can, and she finally goes to sleep. The doctor said she, they diagnosed her with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and they said, we need you to stay away from anything that's going to create trauma in her. Well, that's great, because the next week was the middle of July, and I was supposed to be teaching at Hume Lake. So I bring all the kids up, I bring my wife up, and I'm like, perfect, we are going to be in a stress-free environment, we can frolic among the daisies, we can fish in the lakes, we can do everything. Hume's been our home. Like, I've, I, I've been teaching here for 10 years, but I've gone here since I was 11 years old. It's my other home. On night two, I'm teaching the gospel message, and I get pulled off the stage to the idea that my son Leo is unconscious. No clue why. We get off. My wife's sleeping pill bottle is empty, and the fireman tells us, if your son took these sleeping pills, there's nothing we can do. It's the middle of the night. It's 9.30 p.m. We can't life flight him out. If this is what happened, they said, get in your van, follow an ambulance down the hill. And if we stop, that means we're trying to resuscitate your son. Just keep your distance. Like, I just, uh, I I want you to engage in a thought experiment with me right now. How many of you, if you were actually pressed, the idea that you have of God in your brain is that if you follow him, he stops junk like this from happening. That if you follow Jesus, or if you were to follow Jesus, then your life is supposed to look a certain way. And if he doesn't live up to it, which happens in some of your lives, the reason that some of you don't follow Jesus is because you've had something happen. You've had divorce happen. You've had addiction happen. You've been bullied. Your parents have separated. You've been abused. You've been hurt. This is the story of humanity. It's not subject to certain people in certain places. This is the story of you. This is y'all's story. In the last 10 years, when technology was supposed to give us everything that it possibly could and social media was supposed to improve all of our lives, the rate of your age people that commit suicide has gone up 75%. The promise of the world is the further we get away from God, the more that we'll understand what it means to be free. And here's the sound of freedom. It's sirens, it's brokenness, it's insanity, it is crazy, it is pain, it is abuse, it is neglect, it is bullying. This is the sound of a godless society. And here I am following an ambulance down a mountain where I was preaching the dang gospel to 1,500 high schoolers, praying that the, the ambulance doesn't stop because it means my son's dead. We get down the mountain to get into the valley, into Reedley, to a children's hospital. The children's hospital, they have no clue what's going on. But the doctor who sent us up to Hume Lake gave my wife one command. Stay away from trauma. Does this sound like staying away from trauma to you? And so I look over at my wife, and she's just glazed over. Like, there's like the, 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 it was like the depth of mental illness had just consumed her. And be like these peekaboo moments where my wife would show up. And, then, and now all of a sudden she was just gone. And that started weeks and weeks of therapy and in and out of mental health institutions and rehabilitation clinics. And finally, 
I asked my team, like, what am I supposed to do? And they said, it's long-term inpatient center. So I, like, look around the country. What's the best PTSD long-term treatment center in the country? And I find this place in Tucson, Arizona. We fly out the next day. We're, on, we're literally on like a private jet. Not that I could afford one, but because people around saw how dire the situation was getting and sent us out. But I'm like so grateful. I'm like, finally. God's been so absent in all of this, but finally he's come through because he's made doctors and places and nurses and, and therapies and stuff. And so I thought, maybe here's, maybe here's gonna be my ministry for the rest of my life. My wife and I will go around and talk about mental health stigma in the church and the brokenness of mo- the modern mind because of the pressure of everything else like that. And she'll get to talk about postpartum. She'll get to talk about PTSD. And we'll get to be this like great traveling duo that talks about God's provision in the midst even of the stigma of mental illness. Eight days into her stay, she killed herself. On July 31st of 2021, my wife, the pastor's wife, who my whole life was wrapped around this woman. She's my best friend, mother of my kids. I mean, she led girls in the youth group. She was powerful. She had everything. And then you get a phone call, and your whole life's different. And, for, and, and the, the, haunting, the haunting truth about the life that you live is that for a lot of us, the idea of Jesus, the idea of the God conversation and of Christianity, is, it, it's still in the margins of your life because you've never had to face that freaking moment where you got to decide, is Jesus this thing that I do sometimes on the weekends Is it just this cross I have in my Instagram bio, or do I actually believe this? This is why this conversation is interesting to me. This is why this conversation is not theoretical. It's not the niceties of those who have their junk together. It's the question that each and every one of us has to ask. And, and, and the theme that we're, that we're pulling out of in this idea of, I love the craftsmanship model here, and it talks about what in the heck do we do when we look up and we look at the world around us and we know that we were constructed on purpose, by purpose, for a purpose, and we look around at those around us and we look inside at the evil within us and we think to ourselves, how could this have gone so wrong? And the truth of your life, the truth of the 21st century modern American teenager life is your life is a hum. This is your whole life. Mm, your life's like white noise. Mm, school, work, in and out, whatever the heck you do all the time, right? Like Fortnite, Among Us, like, you know what I mean? Girlfriends, boyfriends, new girlfriends, new girlfriends, stop even remembering their names. You're not, they're not gonna be around next week. Like new, like flavor of the week girlfriend. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Some of you are like, I know, that's my girlfriend. Yeah, you're who I'm talking about. Your life's like a hum, right? Your life's like white noise. And the white noise of social media, it's like you wake up in the morning to the sound of an alarm and then you drown out the big questions of life with music and friends and the the noise of social media and, and of being popular and then of getting grades and of excelling in your job and excelling at school and making it into college and appeasing your parents and being cool to your friends and posing yourself perfectly so people think that you don't weigh as much as you actually do. It's like your whole life is fake. It's like everything's fake. 
And so what do you do when you come to church? You become fake at church, right? You don't know any other way. And you think God's interested in some like cardboard cutout fake version of yourself. And you've been sold a fat lie that God is somehow here for people who have their junk together. That God is somehow here for those of us who are sitting and we walk around and we float on air and everything is good. And every time we pray, God answers our prayers correctly. Guys, that's not the Christian experience. And I don't need to tell it to you. You know. You live in the world. You're in the front lines. Your generation is who everyone's trying to appeal to right now. You're the future of our economy. You're the future of our world. You're the future of everything else like that. How's it feel? How's the burden of everyone's expectations feeling on you? How's it going? How you doing? The hum of life, the danger of the hum of the white noise of your life is you never stop and ask questions, big questions, important questions. We don't do it. The beauty of Hume Lake is not that there's something holy about this building, right? God's not like more here because we're up at altitude, right? God's like, I prefer it higher. The, the closer to heaven, the more I'm present. There's nothing magical about this place. Nothing. The Holy Spirit doesn't live here more. <laughs> the thing that's different is you shut up for a week, for a weekend. And you get confronted with the question that God wants to ask you 24-7, 365, but you just, you're quiet enough to listen. You know it haunts you. These are the questions we have as we put our heads in the pillow at night. Let me ask you a question. Why are you breathing? It's like the most fundamental question. Why are you alive? We starve for this junk. We starve for meaning. We starve for purpose. We starve for intent. We starve for love. You're starved for it. That's why you do what you do. That's why I do what I do. I can't even help it. I'm addicted to it. You're addicted to it. You don't post junk on your social media because you want to keep your grandparents informed. You do it because the, the system of your brain that rewards you every time someone clicks like is the same thing that happens when you take a hit of cocaine. It's your dopamine receptors that fire off that tell you this is what life's about. How is it going? Are you satisfied? Have you met someone who goes, you know what, I'm sufficient in love. I don't need any more. You know, I'm popular enough. This will suffice. You ever met a rich man who just quits and goes, I got enough. Why? Because your soul wasn't built for this crap. It wasn't built for it. That's why you feel empty. You don't look around and be like, well, I'm not empty. Yes, you are. Why, are you look, why do you think you're looking around? <laughs> why do drunk people say, I'm fine? Because they're not, Right? You ever seen a drunk person? It's like, I'm, I have it together. I'm, I can drive. You're like, anyone who can drive never has to explain to someone that they can drive, right? <laughs> if you're, if you're going to spend the rest of the weekend clarifying how you're okay and this conversation doesn't pertain to you, you just put a big target on yourself because of course it does. And no one's going to disagree with me. Then a single person here is going to sit here and go, I disagree. I think the world's going well. <laughs> Everything's fine. And the hum and the white noise of the modern American experience will sedate you until you wake up one day and you're going to be 75 and you're going to finally have to ask the big questions because you're going to be dying. The beauty of Hume Lake is it slows you down enough to ask yourself a question. Why are you here? We judge everything on its ability to, on its ability to fulfill a function, right? Let me ask you a question. Is this a good podium? 
Maybe. What do podiums do? Hold things. Good. It's a good podium. It's doing its job, right? And if you, <laughs> guys, the podium doesn't have, you don't need to clap for the podium. Maybe we need to have a whole other night about what's animate and inanimate in our world. But, okay. And if two people walk in here and one of you is very familiar with podiums, the other one has no clue what podiums are, and you walk up and Reggie over here, what's your name? Roman? Okay, Roman. That was close. Reggie, I made that name up. If Roman over here, and what's your name? Sailor? Like, Yarg. Sailor. Okay. <laughs> I guess that's more pirate than sailor, but I just found out I don't know what sailors say. I'm having an existential experience up here on stage. What is a sailor? Okay, but a sailor. S-A-Y-L-O-R. Sailor. So if Roman, can I call you Reggie? Sounds great. All right. If Reggie and the pirate both get up here at the same time, and Reggie has no clue what this thing is, and Sailor's really familiar with the podium, and Reggie's like, I know what you do with this thing, and he picks up, and he's like, if, you've ever in a, if you're ever in a war, you take this, and if you, if, are they a tall opponent? And you really want to stretch it out. <laughs> Boom. Are they a short, op short opponent? Yeah. Right? Or if it's just like your sister, you can go in like a prod motion, like, please move. This can be defensive or offensive, right? And if you're a Trojan, it's woo, right? You can throw it. And Sailor's like, Reggie, you're high. That, um, I don't know where you're from. Is it Bakersfield? Because that is not, this is not, this is not that. And if Reggie makes a good point, Reggie makes a good point. You I mean, if I threw this at your face, would you be like, that tickled? No, it would suck, right? You'd be like, Man, that blows. I don't want that again. That's not my favorite. He can make a good point. It could be used for a weapon. It wasn't its intended use. And at its core, when we come to find out is this a good podium or not, we must first go to one thing. If they disagree on how it should be used, who do you appeal to? <laughs> who made it? Mr. Manhasset. Made in the USA. Dang straight. Like all good things made in the, whatever, okay? I'm from Bakersfield, too. That's how we talk, okay? Uh, all right. Since 1935, I don't think America was even founded in 1935, but we'll have to check. I'll check Google later. I think nothing was here then, but it is what it is. So, right, like, his name's like Greg Manhasset, right? He, like, built this podium. We got Mr. Manhasset. What is this? He'd be like, it's a podium. What's it used for? Holding things. That means you're wrong, and you're right. But now we actually have a way in which to measure if it's good or not. And that's that. Does it do its job? Friend, listen. A thousand different people can sit in a room and give you a thousand different reasons why they think they're breathing. Why they think that they're alive. And if I asked you the most base question of humanity, are you living a good life? You might say, yes. And I say, well, how do you know you're living a good life? And you would start talking to me all about self-identified meaning, right? Well, I'm a pretty good person. Who says that's a good life? Well, I, I try to do good things for other people. So? How does that make you good? 
good is, when we talk about anything, we talk about its ability to fulfill a function, right? Like everything you see on this stage, I'd be like, hey, this is a really expensive keyboard. It works really well. That means it's got to be able to play music, right? And if it doesn't, we'd say that's a bad keyboard. So I ask you a question. Are you a good person? If you say yes, you got to define it because your yes or your no has to come through the scope and through the medium of who created you. You don't get to define if you're a good person. You didn't make yourself. Anything you find, is it good or it's bad? Well, it, defined, it depends on what its purpose is. Well, what's the purpose? We've got to go to the creator. That's the whole point of this weekend. The whole point of this weekend is you can walk around and I can look at your life and say you're not a good person and you can look at your life and say you are a good person and without some kind of judge above us, we can just sit in an impasse. On, on, on September 11th, on September 11, 2001, Muhammad Otto and a group of people, Islamic terrorists, flew planes into the World Trade Center and other places in Pennsylvania and the Pentagon, and they killed over 3,000 people. Is Muhammad Otto a good person? Does Muhammad Otto's family think he's a good person? Would they think he's a hero? Yes. You think he's a villain. They think he's a hero. Who's right? Good. You figured it out. If you get in a boxing ring and you go, well, I think he's a hero. Well, I think he's a villain. And you box it, you're going to come to no conclusion because it completely depends on your worldview. And just because we are more progressive, they would look at us and go, more progressive? We don't think so. We'll agree to disagree. That's not how it works. You need to appeal to something bigger. The question is, we can actually know whether his behavior was appropriate or inappropriate by talking about who made us. God, you created us. You are the potter who has formed the pottery. I am clay. We are all clay in your hands. Am I good or am I not? And the reason that our world is in such chaos is we have all, as pottery, climbed off the potter's wheel and said, I'm going to be a pot. I'm going to be a ashtray. I'm going to, and the potter's going, that's not what I made you for. That's not what I made you for. That's not what I made you for. And we've all self-identified our meaning and our purpose and our value and everything else like that. And guess what our world is starving for? Meaning, purpose, value, worth. That is our problem. That is our corporate problem as human beings. We talk all day. I'm beautiful. I'm worth it. I'm everything. The reason that we have such problems is you don't believe it. Why? Because you can scream you're beautiful till you are blue in the face. You can scream you are worthwhile till you are blue in the face. You can scream that you have value, but you know what I know. You can't give those things to yourself. They're meaningless when you do. Meaning is discovered, not self-given. And if you want to stop the crazy cycle that is in your heart and in the world around you, you have to appeal to the creator. You have to ask, am I doing a good job? Why am I breathing? Am I doing a good job with what you've made me to do? What is my meaning? What is my worth? What is my purpose? My son drew this picture. His name's Leo. He's three. His actual name's Leonidas. We call him Leo. What's this a picture of? What's your name? Grace. Grace, you play soccer? I do. Fantastic. What's this a picture of? A no! Wrong. It's not a monster. How dare you? Uh, what's your name? Yep. Lucas. What's this a picture of? No. It's not a picture of me. Also, what house are you in? Hufflepuff? Negative 10 points. Are you out of your mind? It's not a picture of me. 
Gryffindor, 10 points. You deserved it. What's your name? Caitlin, what's this picture of? No! It's a dinosaur. You were all wrong, okay? Do you want to know how I know it's a dinosaur? Because Leo drew it, and I asked him, what's this a picture of? And guess what he said? It's a dinosaur. If you hired every brilliant French art critic in the world, and they looked at that painting, they looked at that portrait, they looked at that picture right there, and you asked all of them to commentate on what they think it was a picture of, and they all came to different conclusions, and my three-year-old with pants full of urine walked in that room, <laughs> and they said, this is a picture of this. Who is the authority in that room? My son. Do you want to know what the word authority means? The power of authorship. The power to change the narrative. The power to change the story. My kids and I just read through all the Harry Potter books, okay? Why? Because we're really into witchcraft. No, it's... Yeah. Uh, we also do essential oils, so... Uh, <laughs> oil of boil in a dead man's toe. Okay. <laughs> but my flu's gone, so joke's on you. All right. Um, J.K. Rowling, after the books came out, she came out and just said... Oh, Dumbledore, the guy that you've been reading for seven books, he's gay. True story. J.K. Rowling in a press conference said, BT dubs, Dumbledore's gay. Guess what happened in that moment? Dumbledore became and has always been gay. You want to know why? She has authority. She's the author. She can change the script. The person who originally penned Frankenstein, who's actually a woman, she, in the original composition, said that Frankenstein, the, the, the doctor who created the monster, did so intentionally. And then some really crazy stuff happened in her life, and life kind of happened to her. She lost two kids, and she lost her husband. And she rewrote the end of it to say that Frankenstein's monster kind of created itself. It happened to Dr. Frankenstein. And from here on out, guess what? That's the story because she has the power of authority. She has the power of authorship. I'm going to end in the way that I should have started, which is reading our theme verse. But having set it up, I want you to listen to this now through a new lens. A lens of creation. A lens of authorship. The lens of a potter. The lens of meaning and hope and value and worth and purpose. I want to ask you a question as we end tonight. Verse 17, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. I think it's going to be up here on the screen. Therefore, oh shoot, right? What's the word therefore, therefore? We got to figure that out. What is the word therefore, therefore? Okay, so what's happening right now is this is about the year 55 in the common area, 55 AD. Okay, there's a man named Nero who sits on Rome's throne, and he has now fashioned the guilt of the problems of the world on Christians. They're being killed. Paul, who writes this uh, in, in about the year 55 in Macedonia, is going to be executed in Nero's circus. He's going to get his head cut off. In case you're wondering, this isn't a fable, this isn't a fairy tale. This is actual historical documentation. The man named Paul from Time Magazine is the second most influential man who's ever lived. This is historical data. This isn't fable, this isn't folklore, this is real, right? You can go find it today. If you don't think Paul existed, you sit with people who think they're loaves of bread in the nut house. He's an actual historical figure. He writes this. He's the most powerful man at that time. 
He has all the pomp and circumstance. He's a Pharisee. He's a religious elite. He's wealthy. He's got everything going on for him. And then he claims in historical fact that Jesus Christ, after being crucified, appeared to him and changed his whole life. He went from being high and mighty to lowly and depraved. He had nothing. He gets shipwrecked. He gets bitten by a snake. He's sent out on a missionary journey where he's consistently put in prison. He's going to end his life in Roman jails, and then he's going to get his head cut off. Being His whole life is going to be made a joke. And he writes this. He writes this to a group of Christians who are beginning to undergo persecution. They're going to continue persecution under Diocletian, uh, obviously under Nero. And there's going to be a whole history of Christians being killed for the sake of the gospel. So the way that 2 Corinthians chapter 5 begins is it says this. So we can know what the therefore is there for. It begins by saying, For we know that if the earthly body we have is going to be destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. So Paul begins with this truth. My body is not here for the long haul. As C.S. Lewis once said, You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Okay? You don't have a soul. It's not some neat after effect of the body you have. Your body is material, but who you are is immaterial. And we have no reason to expect that immaterial things would experience the same death that our physical bodies do. You don't have a soul. You are an immaterial soul. What you have is an avatar for 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 70 years. In my wife's case, 28 years. And you don't know how long it's going to be which is why this whole world, we're, we're borrowing on gambled time already. So Paul is, is creating emergency in the hearts of the Christians in Corinth to say, we're going to die soon. He feels the temperature of the rising persecution, and he says, we're not long for this world. But he continues, what's the therefore, therefore? In verse 5, now the one who has fashioned us, that's the word cater uh, godzomai, right? The one who, who has, like a tradesman, built us together. The one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God. For we live by faith, not by sight. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This was Paul's, this was Paul's motivation. He was firmly, fixed, firmly and fixed convinced that each and every human being who's ever lived, who is a soul, doesn't have a soul, is going to one day stand before the potter, and the potter is going to ask, what did you do? Did you fulfill your purpose? The question is, right here, it says uh, that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things we've done while in body. Do you hear what Paul's saying? He's saying you've got two different parts of your existence. When you're in body... And then when you're out of it. You see, it's a brand new thought in human history that when you die, you just turn to nothing. When, when Jesus in, in John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The crazy part of that was not that, that people live on forever. Everyone always believed that. It was that you could live on forever in the kingdom of God as a Gentile. That was the new thought that was happening. So here's what it says. They are going to receive what is due for them while in body, whether good or bad. The question is, what makes a human life good and what makes a human life bad? Our definition of good and bad is crazy, right? If I throw a rock at your grandma from 150 yards away, was that a good throw? Heck yeah, it was a good throw, right? That was dope. It's like, what? That hit her right in the dome. But was it a good throw? No, bro, you hit a woman in the head from 150 yards away. Now, it was impressive good, but it wasn't morally good, right? 
Good is so confusing. We don't really know what good is. And so we got to appeal to something. Who do we appeal to? The creator. Are we good or are we not good? Whether in body or after. Since then, we as Christians know what it is to fear the Lord. We understand that this life is temporary, but that our soul is eternal. So we are going to try to persuade others. This is why Hume Lake exists. If you don't know Jesus, let me tell you why we're here. Let me tell you why I have a job and tell me why I do what I do. Because I want you to know, I'm here to persuade you to hand your life, your common, insignificant, without Jesus, meaningless, purposeless, bad life over to the potter. The one who can make beautiful things out of broken things. The one who gives purpose, who gives meaning, who gives worth, and who gives value. I'm here to persuade you. Hume Lake exists to persuade you. Because we know the truth of what's to come. And we want you to know the king. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is plain to your conscience. Verse 16. So from now on, we're not going to regard anyone from a worldly point of view. I don't care if you're tall or short or you're athletic, if you've got a scholarship or not, if you're smart or you're dumb. I don't care about worldly things, the Bible says. Here's the therefore is coming up, and Paul's saying right here, do not worry about man's outer appearance. On the day of reckoning, when everyone bows the knee to Jesus, we will all be exactly the same. I do not regard you from a worldly point of view, Paul says. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Verse 17, therefore, because this life is short, because eternity is coming, because we will all face the judgment seat of God, because we don't know whether or not we're good or bad, because we implore people to know the king, because he gives meaning and value and purpose. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul is, you see Paul's passion here? And, and again, if this is a modus ponens argue, line of argumentation, if P, then Q, we can also say then, listen to the negation. This is nerdy language for you who so don't care, right? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What's the antithesis of that? If anyone is not in Christ, he is not a new creation. The old has not gone, the new has not come. What does he mean, the old and the new? Your way of being, the way that you found worth and value in being the, the savior of your existence, your reason for justifying the breaths that you're taking from this planet, your old way of thinking is still due to you. It's still how you orient your life. You still think you're good because you fulfilled some self-meaning thing that could totally be different. We watch people every day who think that their meaning in life is to hurt other people. Their meaning in life is to neglect people. Their meaning in life is to get rich or die trying. And we have, because we are so afraid of offending people, allowed everyone in their insanity to chase whatever rat race they want to chase because we would hate to ever be accused of judging anyone even if what they're doing is walking straight off a cliff that's going to lead to their death. We don't care because we can't be offensive. Paul doesn't give a rip. That's why he gets his head cut off. And this is our responsibility as believers. It's to love you enough to tell you there's a new way of being. You see, when, when Jesus bids a man, he doesn't bid him come and swear less, have sex less often. 
When Jesus bids a man, when Jesus bids a woman to come unto himself, when Jesus bids us to know him, he is not in the business of making us a little bit nicer or a little bit better or a little bit better attendance in church. When Jesus bids a man, he bids him come and die. The reason that your Christianity is so disinteresting is someone along the route has told you you can be your old self with your old way of doing things and evaluating yourself and perceiving your meaningless world. They've told you you can still be that, but you should go to church more often. That is the problem of modern Christianity. That's why it's so disinteresting. The call of Jesus is not fit Jesus in with the rest of your life, get some Holy Spirit sprinkles on the other things you're doing. It is to die to your old self. Kill it. The gospel does not make good things better. It makes dead things alive. And this is the business of Jesus. And how come Jesus could write such a big check? Because Jesus, the dead man, came back. And if he can do that, then he can do it for you too. And let me tell you, I can, I, the reason I can speak into your heart and you might go, this guy's a wizard. The Bible tells me the condition of your heart without Jesus. I know you're lost. I know you're broken. I know you struggle with meaning. I know not enough guys are gonna be able to satisfy the emptiness of the brokenness of the problems that you have in your life. I know. I was the homecoming king, prom king, and everything of a 4,000 person school. Do you know what that got me? More depressed than ever. Because I kept winning popularity contests and feeling more insignificant. You know it's true. This is your world without Jesus. This is why Paul is obsessed with this idea. If anyone is in Christ, he's a brand new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. My prayer for you this weekend is you would wake up to the conversation. If you're sick and tired of the boring, mundane, pithy, watered-down Christianity that calls you to stop swearing so much. Get rid of it. It's not the Christianity of the scriptures. It's not the call of Jesus. It's a call that enables us to stand in the middle of brokenness, in the middle of mental health issues, at the wake of my wife's suicide with hope. Why? Because I know that my Redeemer lives. This is the hope that we have in Jesus. And I apologize on behalf of the church if we have taken this most radical adventure and call of the gospel to die to self and be alive in Christ and have somehow brought it down to a level where you think if you put crosses under the eye black of your football helmet that you are in the kingdom. You're not. Because being in the kingdom means you're a brand new creation. You don't have purpose outside of him. You don't have meaning outside of him. You don't have value outside of him. You don't have life outside of him. But dang it, if you're in him, all those things come flooding in in a new way that you've never experienced before. This is the hope of the gospel, and I want you to know it. I'm here to persuade you. I don't care if I'm entertaining to you. I don't care if, I, I, I don't care if you like me. I want you someday to face death the way that my wife did. Knowing the truth of who she was, even in the midst of her brokenness, I want you to have hope. And this world sold you a big freaking lie. And in the church and in Jesus, there is hope that supersedes any self-meaning you've given to yourself. And the reason I think that you're going to listen to the conversation is you know what I know, because I sat where you sat, and I couldn't have felt more empty. 
And everyone liked me, and everyone cheered for me, and I had all the scholarships, and I had the whole world going for me. But what in the world did I think that my, who am I? I am a soul, that my immaterial soul was gonna be satisfied with physical possessions? My immaterial soul needs an insatiably big God to fill it, a meaning bigger than myself, not derived from those around me, not derived even from within, but from without, from the one who made me, the manhasset of my life, the one who looks at me and says, I know what you mean. I drew you, and this is who you are in me. And if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Let's pray. Jesus, would you just be merciful to us? Would you be merciful to me? I can teach about this stuff, but I still so often find myself at an impasse with your word. I just am embarrassed by the things that I consistently choose to do. And it's not like following you then comes with this brand new idea that I'm gonna live in perfection. Like I still mess up every day and I don't want to. I wanna follow you. In you are riches beyond compare, and not physical ones, but it, the riches of meaning and value and purpose and salvation. God, would you be merciful enough to draw us near in this conversation? Would you just open our hearts to what you have to say? Would you break the white noise that we came up here with just so we can lean in and ask some bigger questions? What is my life all about? Am I doing good? Am I not? Do I even know my creator, or am I just playing house with this whole church thing? Would you stir our hearts to answer these questions with your honesty? In your name we pray, amen.